Hi, everybody, and welcome to Mecha Dragon, a podcast about all the geeky and nerdy stuff you love. Brought to you by Captain Geek and the Dark Nerd. I'm your Captain Will. And I'm your nerd, Jess. And today we are talking about The Thing, the 1982 film directed by John Carpenter, written by Bill Lancaster and John W. Campbell Jr., uh, starring Kurt Russell, Wilmford Brimley, (laughs) T.K. Carter, David Clennon, Keith David, Richard Dysart, Charles Hallahan, Peter Maloney, Richard Macer, Donald Moffat, Joel Polis, Thomas G. Waits, and many others, as a matter of fact. But uh, those would be the main cast members. So I want to uh, welcome to the program returning guests, Eric Hansen, who is a writer and a film critic with Screen Hub. Welcome back to the show, Eric. It ain't Fuchs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we also have with us uh, returning Megan Salinas, who is a horror aficionado as well as a co-host of the no love lost podcast and uh runs a youtube channel called silver screams did i get it all right this time megan yeah but guys i'm sorry i just don't know who to trust here like how do i know like if if i was a perfect imitation like a perfect imitation how would you know it was really me Moment of awkward silence. I didn't know you guys were bringing your A game today. I feel, <laughs> I feel out of place. Yeah, so this is a really uh, delightful horror movie from, uh, you know, as I said, John Carpenter in the early 80s. And uh, we know there are some great stuff put out with those criteria. So I, we want to start, as we tend to do, with a brief non-spoilery discussion. And I think we can keep it pretty brief. Uh, since this, you know, film is what like 28 years old at this point, and uh, you know, if if you don't want spoilers from a film from the 80s, I, I don't know what to tell how, how you, good, but it's possible at this mm-hmm. at this particular point in time. I hate to bring this up to be a math nerd, but how good would you say you are at math? Uh, not extremely good. Because uh, this was I'm 1982. Great, as long as there's not going to be a quiz. <laughs> And you said this movie was 28 years old? Oh, yeah, you're right. It's 2020. 38 years old. 38. You know who like... else is really bad at math? Imitations. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> or, that, or is that just what an imitation would say? Oh. That's well, what they told me to say. find out um, who's who. <laughs> I think what we're, what we're coming to realize, gentlemen, is that paranoia is the true enemy. Oh. <laughs> you know, one thing I love about this movie is that it, it makes the commentary of paranoia being, you know, one of your enemies in a situation like this mm-hmm. without oh, yeah. being so pretentious about it because I've definitely seen movies come out in more recent years that try to capture that same feeling that this movie inspires but doing a really bad job of it (laughs) yeah Hmm. yeah Yeah. it's the difference between letting the story speak for itself as this movie does versus you know cramming the message in there with the subtlety of a sledgehammer to your ankles (laughs) (laughs) Nice reference. I understood that one. I like that. <laughs> Sounds miserable. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. But I'm um, ching. So, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, this is, um, this is really, uh, I mean, I would call it a classic. I'm not sure, you know, what percentage of people haven't seen this movie, but uh, I, I would say it's, it's well worth the watch if you're a horror fan at all. Well, I was talking and, to my brother earlier today. 
And I said, yeah, we're doing a podcast day on the thing. And I was like, not the 1950s version, not the 2011 version, but the 1980s version. He's like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of them. And then he texted me back later. He's like, oh, wait, are you talking about the swamp thing? I'm like, no, not the swamp what? thing. But uh, he, I was like, no, the one with the dog and the, they're in the snow. And, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, I haven't seen that one in a long time. So there are a lot of people that have seen this movie, but it's it's always been one of my favorites. And I think a lot more people need to see it because there's a lot of people that I know that haven't seen it. And I also consider it a classic, but I think it could use a little more mainstream attention you know i think that um one of the really standout things about this movie and the way it's constructed like it's your points that you were making about how it really does convey this sense that paranoia itself you know can be the enemy is like this movie is a master class in suspense i think it's a master class in what happens on screen versus what happens off screen right so just the way I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm a writer and I kind of like tend to look at things structurally. And I think that just the way that this movie is, is set up and just how the story progresses at every step is just so well thought out and, and totally effective. And, you know, starting with a situation where you might think, oh, I have an idea of what's going on here. But I mean, if you know nothing about the movie, you really have no freaking clue what's happening at the beginning, just like the, you know, the main characters uh, when the, uh, uh, you know, at the beginning of the movie when the, um, a couple of other characters first show up. Yeah, I always appreciate any movie that is extremely intentional with every scene and with every step of the way. Like, with Carpenter movies in particular, there is a lot of thought and effort that goes into every story beat every shot like this is a very very thoughtful movie yeah very if you want to talk about you know one of the best openings to a film ever i think the thing the thing is the perfect perfect example of how you open a movie to hook the audience right away you have Mm -hmm. you know really brilliant openings to films like say the opening of jaws i think a lot of people cite this one it's such a confusing scene it's, it's, an excite, it's an exciting scene, and it introduces the main characters in such a clear and concise way. Like, the intro, the intro to R.J. McCready, where he has, like, two lines. It's like maybe a 30-second scene of him in his shack pouring his J&B down the chest wizard. Mm-hmm. You right. immediately know who this guy is. And I can speak from experience that that is some really nasty whiskey. <laughs> so he's he's hardcore. I mean, you know that right away. And also, you must really be upset at the game you're playing to destroy the chess machine itself. It's like, I have now decided in this moment I'm never playing this game ever again. <laughs> well, I, I love that it, it functions simultaneously as a fantastic character introduction. It, it tells you everything you need to know about this guy in, in a few brief moments, but it also acts as kind of, you know, not to get into spoilers or anything, but it actively tells you sort of what's about to go down without in, in a, in a very similar vein of like when in, the the Spielberg movie Jurassic Park when Alan Grant ties his seatbelt together how that acts as foreshadowing for later mm-hmm. too like this mm-hmm. is a this is a great moment of foreshadowing with as as Eric said without beating you over the head with it like a sledgehammer 
And right. McCready, by the way, is uh, Kurt Russell's character, the character we're talking about. Yeah. And nice little bit of trivia, the chess wizard is actually voiced by Adrienne Barbeau, who I believe was married to John Carpenter at the time, and she had also previously appeared in John Carpenter's The Fog uh, and Escape from New York. Okay. Wow. So there is Wonderful. a computer called Chess Wizard where he's playing a chess against a computer. I, I don't think that's we can consider that really a spoiler. I mean, it's just kind of a little character bit uh, at the beginning. <laughs> and apparently he lost the game. All right. Well, we're talking a lot about the opening scene. Let's get on to general impressions. Yeah, yeah, I kinda, yeah. I kind of so, derailed that. So, Eric, general impressions about the whole movie. This movie is, simply put, one of the best science fiction horror films ever made. It is up there with the likes of Alien and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you know, uh, I'm one of the few people today who actually saw the 50s version first. I saw the 50s version when I was about six or seven years old, and it was the first horror movie that I really loved. And my mother, who insisted, oh, I'm not going to let you watch any rated R horror movies, uh, got this for me without me asking for it. So she said she didn't want me to watch any R-rated horror movies and then would go out and buy me R-rated horror movies. That's good parenting right there. How old and then I, and then, when she threw this at you? Because I was, ah! I was about, I was 12. Good Lord. This is, I mean, as horror, I mean, okay, so this is an intense horror movie. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I met so Robocop I when I was eight. That was pretty cool. Saw it when I was 12, uh, saw it in the middle of the night, and immediately And how many I years felt... did it haunt your dreams? <laughs> oh, I, I was too fascinated, like, to be haunted by it. Like, it, it genuinely scared me when I first saw it. It doesn't scare me anymore, but I still love it. And uh, yeah. it's just... It's a masterclass in pacing. It's a good way. It's it's a film that shows very well how you can deal with an ensemble because the twelve man ensemble here is dealt with masterfully well. The score is fantastic. the The isolated setting is fantastic. Rob Bottin's makeup is impeccable. It is, and, and uh, one of the great things about it, it does not rely on jump scares. There's a couple here and there, but for the most part, it's all about this looming feeling of dread that you do not know who you can trust. You don't even know if you can trust the main character, you know, who in this camp is the imitation. You know, that's, it's, I mean, what more can be said about this film except, you know, it is one of the greats of the genre. Those are some great, I think, even concluding comments for the, uh, for your portion of the non-spoiler section. So how many uh, things out of 10 would you rate the thing? <laughs> Only an imitation would say less than 10. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Not uh, not foreboding at all. So, uh, Jess, what are your, you know, overall impressions slash final comments? This has always been one of my favorite movies since I saw it first. I never saw the original from The Thing from, is it Outer Space or Another World or something? The Thing from Another World. The Thing I, from I, Another World. Actually, uh watched the trailer on it this morning and it's pretty crazy i i i, I want to watch it and see how it is because it doesn't look as much like the 80s version but i watched the 80s version this morning and then i watched the first half of the 2011 uh version which i guess is a prequel but it's just a fantastic horror film like you guys already mentioned the pacing's great the acting's great and there's that feeling of suspense. And this is basically like a sci-fi horror version of the game Clue. <laughs> you know, it, it's definitely a whodunit 
Because throughout the movie, there's all sorts of different scenes. It's like something happened. Someone did it. We don't know who it is. And they're all trying to figure it out. And they take steps to do that. And it just feels feels like Clue. And it keeps you on the edge of your seat. And the suspense is fantastic. And as far as the gore, it's uh, two thumbs up from this guy right here. I do like it. How many things out of ten would you give? Ah, man. Eric said ten things out of ten. And that's a lot of things. <laughs> I would I'm going to have to go just overall at least an 8.5 maybe 9. Hmm. It's an imitation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Megan, what about you? What are your um overall impressions slash final thoughts uh, final non-spoilery thoughts? In a word, iconic. This movie mm. is iconic for a reason. It's it's not the only film it, horror horror film to take place in a snowy setting, a snowy isolated setting, but I would say it's impossible for any modern horror movie that attempts to make that their setting. Mm. Uh it's it's impossible for those films not to be compared to the thing. It's the right. it's the first film I saw that made a legitimate attempt to bring Lovecraftian imagery mm. into like onto the screen. Like a mm. legitimate attempt at that. And that alone should be commended because they they did an incredible job. The the gore and the body horror are all intense and done practically done in real time and And you would of- say they would hold up by today standards uh it kind of depends on who you ask like because i feel like when cgi was getting really big there was this very dismissive attitude towards films like this that relied Mm. so heavily on puppetry and makeup there was the kind of this dismissal but then in years of us growing accustomed to cgi there's kind of been you know it it's swung back the other way. There's this been this longing for practical effects because, you know, you long to see actors react to something that's actually in the room with them and to see right. shadows hit something that's actually physically there. And I feel like everything in this movie is absolutely a joy to look at. <laughs> I say joy, even though it's joy. Really sticky and gross. I was clapping. <laughs> um, I, I just realized how that sounds to normal people. <laughs> because no joke, uh, when I sat down to do my rewatch, uh, my roommate made me watch it in my room by myself, as opposed to watching it in the living room. Because uh, she's just like. Don't get me wrong, I'll put up with some horror stuff, but not the thing. And I'm like, but <laughs> but it's so cool. And she's like, no. Um, <laughs> but no, the... I think it's the head crab scene that does it for most people. <laughs> I'm just like, but it's so good with the tentacles and the fake blood. No, but to, to get back to my, my point... The the dialogue's iconic, the setting is iconic, the monster is iconic, and like there's just so much about this movie that stands the test of time. And like I said, it's hard for any movie or really any story that tries to sort of tap into that same sense of cold isolation. Right. Um, it's hard mm-hmm. for those to exist without being compared to this masterpiece. So all in all, definitely worth a watch if you have the stomach for it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's one thing you mentioned, you brought up that's very interesting, the the CGI. Uh, since I know Will and I are older, um, 
and you guys, I don't know, you could be youngins, um, but we all grew up basically during the growth of CGI and movies and stuff. And there was a, a time where the makeup effects in movies got to a point that they were really good. And then CGI came out and CGI itself was very crappy. I mean, CGI came out and it was not it was not good for a long time. Now, today, we obviously have fantastic CGI that you can't tell apart from reality unless you understand what reality is. But uh, CGI was very bad. And I'm so glad this movie came in before the CGI phase, because I think if they tried to do this, it would be in that crappy CGI era where everything would just look totally ridiculous. But yeah, the, the makeup and special effects in this are horrifyingly um, uh, acceptable. <laughs> you know, they're very good. <laughs> <laughs> they're good. Yeah, so Megan, how many things out of 10 would you give the thing? I go back and forth between 9 and 10, honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, it's mm -hmm. it's a masterpiece. No, no film is perfect, but this is... I think this is as close to perfect as you can get. Anything bad I have to say about this movie is a genuine nitpick or something where it's like, if we want to take a step back and look at it from like a sociological perspective of like, well, this movie isn't great when it comes to representation, but that's, you know, that's something that we, although at the time, you know, definitely better than a lot of its uh, sure. horror cohorts at the time, but like, like I said, any nitpicks I have with it are from like a modern of like, oh, it would have been nice to have a little bit more of a diverse cast. Like we have a few people of color in there, but it's predominantly straight white men, um, you know, just all doing their thing. And I know that that was semi-intentional on the on the on the creator's part. I know one of the reasons why they didn't bring any women into the film was because they didn't want to throw gender politics or gender, a different gen gender dynamic into the setting. So I yeah, understand that would, that would why be too they, confusing in that, in that particular setting. I understand why they didn't, but just as a woman, I'm like, I like to see myself represented. <laughs> like, why can't yeah. women have their own 12 angry men? <laughs> but that's one of the reasons why <laughs> that's one of the reasons why films like The Descent and why Annihilation are so great, too, because it's mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. we we just need more like that so that, like, I don't have to look at the thing and go, why am I not represented? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, for me, you know, I've, I obviously agree with a lot of what of what you guys are saying. I really do think this film holds up in a big way. And, you know, there have been many horror films that I have seen made since 1982 that don't even come close to holding up even in their own time <laughs> uh, to this one. I think, um, I think it is, like I said before, a masterclass in suspense. And you're right. I mean, it's totally iconic now. And I really do appreciate the fact that there is this, this, Lovecraftian imagery in it, you know, and it takes it about as far as I've ever seen it taken. <laughs> I, yeah, I would say in any in any film, and I really appreciate that about it. And I think that it wasn't even it was like even the use of the creature effects was not. I mean, it, it was used as part of the story, too, not just as, like, a jump scare or, you know, just as, like, 
you know, something gratuitous that didn't really fit organically with everything else. Like it was just just the way that it was used in the story, I think, was was excellently done. And I think I would actually give this a 10 things out of 10. I think I I think I would have to. I do kind of go back and forth between nine and a half and 10. But at that point, I'm just going to call it a 10. Well, at least I know I can trust one person here. <laughs> I ain't going with Windows. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that concludes our non-spoilery section of this discussion about the thing made in 1982, directed by John Carpenter. So if you haven't seen it, if uh, any of this you know sounds like something you'd be interested in, go watch the movie right now. It's yeah, it's if you, it's amazing. If you like horror films or suspense. With a little bit of gore, just a little tiny bit of gore. There's just a couple of really, just a few frames, really, of gore. Yeah. If if you like the genre, this is essential viewing. Uh, And I'm not going to be one of those people that says, well, you're not really a horror fan if you haven't seen it. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to be that person because that's gatekeeping nonsense. But it is, it is a wholly rewarding experience to sit down and watch this film. Yeah, it's a yeah, fantastic. Definitely. Film. I mean from from opening to ending, uh, like every second of it, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a this is a fantastic movie to, you know, pop in, you know, when the sun is setting, watch it in the dark. You know, it is <laughs> quite an experience when you watch it with the lights off. And that's the way I feel. Oh, it is. Yeah. It is. So, absolutely. Last night when I did my rewatch, I, I sat down on my bed. I'm curled up like in my blankets and I had a glass of whiskey in honor of McCready. And I'm like, <laughs> I can't think of a better way to sit. Great idea. Oh, I wish yeah. I would have done that. I need to try J&B. <laughs> yeah, this movie is also it's an exciting experience, but it's also a useful tool as well. Um, like we mentioned earlier, you know, kids getting exposed to movies like this at a young age. Sometimes that becomes a little questionable, but clean your room or I'll make you watch the thing again. <laughs> Guess what's going to happen? That room's going to be clean pretty quick. <laughs> I see why your children's rooms are so spotless. <laughs> if my mom threatened me with that, I'd never clean my room. It's probably why right. I didn't clean my well. room. Well, <laughs> right. some of us would of never ordinary. get anything done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're firmly in spoiler territory now, so I think the first thing we should talk about is... Iron um, Man dies at the end. No. Boom! Yeah. <laughs> Didn't expect that. How dare that. you? <laughs> In the thing. So let's talk about that first scene, shall we? Since we're all such fans of it. So, you know, Eric, you were talking about how the first scene does so much. So why not, can you just uh, explain it briefly and tell us what you what you mean by that? I mean, it's, so con- it's such a confusing opening where you have these people right. in a helicopter chasing a dog across, you know, this Arctic tundra. And it's like, okay, what is going on? Immediately you're intrigued because obviously there's either something wrong with the dog or something wrong with these guys. And a lot of people in the audience are going to be animal lovers, so you're predisposed to, you know, not like the guys. But uh, it's there's just something very apocalyptic about it. Like right away, I think in one of the in the documentaries it says right away that that opening feels like the end of the world, right. and and then and then the dog gets to the camp and you're like, well, it's acting really damn weird. So you know that there's something really wrong with this dog. Um, I think it would be real easy to make the assumption, which is probably you know the assumption that some of the main characters are making is like, who are these assholes shooting at this dog? You know, are they just like, and then, you know, the guy gets out of the helicopter, 
he sees the dog like licking one of the <laughs> one of the guys at the American station and he freaks out. He's screaming at them in Swedish, you know, and it's just so confusing. For God's sake, Will, it's Norwegian. Yeah. <laughs> right. Did you right. do that on purpose, Will? <laughs> I Yeah, and that's the thing too, like with the opening scene, it's like, okay, what is going on here? Who are these people? Why is there a dog in is, I mean, it looks like Alaska, it's actually Antarctica, I believe, is where it mm-hmm. takes place. Yeah. And it's like, why is there a dog just loose, running around? There's something going on. And you don't learn until later that there's it's two It's an opening that immediately raises all kinds of questions and answers really none of them. Right. Which, get used to that when it comes to this movie. <laughs> yeah. um, but in the in the best way, in the best way yeah. possible. Um, yeah. yeah, when the credits roll at the end, you're like, huh. <laughs> yeah, no. When when I was a teenager, I used to think that ambiguity in storytelling was just a writer being lazy. <laughs> um mm-hmm. and obviously I've grown out of that mentality and it's films like this that make me see the value of the use of ambiguous storytelling. Mm. Um because this movie is ambiguity in a nutshell and like it's very intentional with its use of ambiguity and at the end of the day all of the mysteries presented within the film are kind of irrelevant because we understand the fate of everybody involved with the exception of our our final two protagonists but well we'll get to that when we get to that but um yeah no this this opening scene is just so good crazy thing though um i've heard and i don't 100 percent know if this is true but i've heard crazy thing Uh, Uh. i i i don't know for sure if this is true so please take this with a grain of salt but i heard that when this movie was dubbed internationally and like when it came to its release in norway they didn't bother changing the language for for the norwegian in the opening of this film so when he's yelling at everybody about why they need to get away from the dog they didn't bother to hide that in its international Uh... release so everybody in norway who sat down to watch this movie are like they got spoilers yeah they got spoilers (laughs) um so that that's that's pretty an, damn funny. Yeah, if that's true, that was a huge oversight on inter, uh, Universal. Yeah, that seems part. like a big oversight because that's kind of part. That's part and parcel of how it sets up. Really, the whole movie is the fact that you don't know what that guy is. Yeah, they should have changed right. it to a different language, like English. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been hilarious if they dubbed the English-speaking actors in Norwegian and the Norwegian-speaking actor in English. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think yeah. if that is, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if that story is true because uh, the reason this movie didn't do too well, a lot of people like to say, oh, it's because it came out the same summer as E.T. and Or the same time as E.T. I forget. It feels e. like a different audience than E.T. to me. Yeah, yeah. very I mean, Not your family-friendly extraterrestrial I, traveler. I don't think that the release of E.T. was really responsible. I think it was just that the head of Universal, Sid Sheinberg, was not fond of the movie and so when it came to advertising and you know preparing you know the public for the film universal really didn't put a lot of effort into it and as a result when it was released there wasn't really a build-up to it and uh scheinberg you know didn't get along terribly well with john carpenter and plus his protege steven spielberg had another movie coming out so scheinberg was obviously very biased towards that so i think 
A lot of people like to paint Spielberg and E.T. as the villains of the things, you know, not being a box office hit. It wasn't a bomb. It made back, it, it was able to recoup its budget and make like about a million dollars. It just was not a big hit. And, and really, I think it was just that the studio bungled the release because they were banking much more on, you know, Spielberg at the time. That seems a lot more likely to me, <laughs> that yeah, story. And- it's it's also important to to point out too that critics aren't always right. You know, I say this as we're all sitting here down like cri- <laughs> like looking at this movie critically, but critics don't always have it right because sometimes yeah. films are ahead of their time and critics tore this apart at the time of its release. They were not fond of the Lovecraftian gore. Right. Uh they they I think they thought of it as like too exploitative and just too reliant on shock value. But like, you know, just give it a couple of years and people can see it for the masterpiece that it is. I yeah. think uh I know that, that that hurt Carpenter especially, but the one critic that hurt him the most was Christian Nivey, the director of the original The Thing, who completely shredded this film. And, oh, and uh, Carpenter, Carpenter, incidentally, has continued to call the 1950s version of The Thing one of his favorite films of all time. That was one of the reasons he wanted to do this, because he's like, hey, you know, The Thing is one of my favorite movies. I better remake it, or somebody who, or somebody who doesn't give a fuck about this masterpiece is going to remake it, and I want to do this right. <laughs> so... Well, yeah, he he loved it so much. He didn't he didn't necessarily need see the need for it to be remade because he's like, it's already a great movie. Why, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And it was only when like they talked about wanting to return it to like be a little closer to the original source material that he was like, okay, yeah, I'm on board since it'll be different. Yeah, he said he wanted to do it just because of the blood test scene, and the blood <laughs> test scene is. One of the best scenes in horror. Oh, and definitely. Inc- and incidentally, it since we're talking about the blood test scene, I think that scene has uh, resulted in a in a misconception about the film because uh, there's a bit in the there's a bit and I think it's one of the audio commentaries where where uh, somebody I believe I believe it, it might be Dean Cundy, cinematographer, is talking about yeah for that scene you know we made sure that. You know, we we tried to keep a glint out of the one character's eyes to kind of like subtly hint that he's not human. So people and it is in that scene. It is true. When you look at Palmer's eyes, since we're in spoiler territory, we can say that the character of Palmer, the stoner, is the thing in this scene. His eyes are completely black. And so a lot of people like to go to the end of the film where there's only two characters left and say, ah, that one character has no glint in his eyes. Therefore, he's the he's the thing. And then Dean Cundy said, no, it was just for that one scene because we couldn't do that for every shot of the movie. People who think we did that for every shot of the movie do not know what it's like to make a movie because that's some complicated lighting to set up. Because could you imagine us changing every little light to say, oh, no, in this one split second, there's there's a glint in Donald Moffat's eyes. (laughs) (laughs) It was only for the one it was only for the one Hmm. scene. So. That is a scene that, I mean, speaking of iconic, that, I mean, because I saw this movie when I was fairly young. I mean, I wasn't like five years old or anything, but I must have been like 10 Three. maybe when I saw this movie, something like Ugh, that. Good. And uh, I, I mean, maybe I was 12. I think I was more like 10 or 11. But regardless, that blood test scene is one that just really the memory of it stayed with me like my whole life. Like mm-hmm. this, the, the level of tension and suspense in that scene is just through the roof. And that's really like one of the main jump scares in the whole movie is that blood scene. Cause you're not expecting it. 
What's great about that scene is the jump scare is used to kick off the scene. Like, yes, right. exactly. It gets, yes. Ju- it gets you to jump, and then it doesn't let you off the hook. Yeah, and then it, it unfolds let go at all. Doesn't let go of that guy's head. Really. I I, yeah. <laughs> I would say that's how every jump scare in this in this movie sort of functions. Mm. Um, is that it's there's no build up to any of them. They just exist, and then and then something continually terrible happens afterwards. But what's also great about that scene, and, and something that's great about the the movie as a whole, is the minimal use of score. Like this, mm-hmm. the score for this movie is fantastic. Um, and it's Ennio Morricone doing the score, by the way, who's you know a renowned film composer that won all these Oscars and did the music right. for all these amazing movies. Yeah, yeah, and, and his score for this movie is pitch perfect. Uh, if you'll mm-hmm. pardon the pun, but the like. <laughs> What's what's really great about it is that it's there to set up the mood and atmosphere and its absence is not a hindrance at like they, they use it, it. It This is a movie where, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think of it because of how over the top a lot of the practical effects are. But like this is a movie where less really is more. And so the the minimal use of score in this film is really, really effective. Yeah. And they kind of did that, too, even with the uh, the dialogue throughout the movie. There's a lot of scenes where they're, you know, the scene ends and fades to black with them just kind of staring at each other. Yeah, and... I noticed that that when they do that, Jess, because um, this is a really good point I want to reinforce, like it was usually when a question was asked to which the answer one way or the other not could be good. very <laughs> dire. And they just kind of leave it hanging. Yeah. You know, like they do it when they ask uh, the doctor, Wilford Brimley, they ask him something. Diabetes. They ask him, like, what do you think? Could we be, you know, infected? And then it's like he looks at him, fade to black. And they do that a couple times, I think, uh, like you were saying. Yeah. No, I like that. Incidentally, um, fun little uh, tidbit about Wilford Brimley's character. Like, it's one of the best roles in Wilford Brimley's career. For sure. Um, but uh, I, I believe... A, this may not be accurate, but I believe originally Carpenter wanted Donald Pleasance to play Blair because Pleasance had already been in both Halloween and Escape from New York, and they'd gotten along really well. And I think, I think there was just some there was just something he was not available, you know, due to his schedule at the time. That may not be accurate, but I I I do recall reading that somewhere, and that that certainly would have been a very interesting interpretation of the character. Yeah, I mean, I I do like uh, what Wilford Brimley brought. To that character though and it's not the kind of movie you're used to seeing him in either you know right uh so that that made it interesting as well uh but i really think to the points that i think megan and and jess were both making like the use of silence in this movie is again i think very deliberate you know it can it can help kind of reinforce the isolation of it all the uncertainty of it all you know the kind of uh, social tension that they were that they were having, you know, on that uh, on that site in Antarctica. And I think that it just goes to show, again, how deliberate like every little piece of this movie was that, you know, was put together in such a masterful way. Right. And there's uh, I noticed while watching it, it kind of relates to 2020 because why <laughs> not have the thing in 2020? Uh, that's all that we need. But uh, there's a couple scenes like once they find out that uh, basically the thing is an alien life form that can kind of be uh, transmitted just by, I don't know, 
by touch or if someone sneezes or coughs, you can get a little bit of that DNA. So towards the second half of the movie, they get into that spot where, no, stay away. You're too close. And they do social distancing. (laughs) And social distancing is good not only for the coronavirus, but for interstellar extraterrestrial travelers that are sent to the Earth to assimilate and destroy you. I wonder if we're just more primed to pick up on those details now, you know, because I really noticed the moment when um, I can't remember who it was uh, told uh, McCready. He was like, look, um, you know, we should be preparing our own meals from now on. Oh, Fuchs. Yeah. Yeah. Fuchs. Thank you. And it should be cans. It should be canned food. Yes, what, it should be canned food. The the moment like where watching this movie in 2020, like I've never experienced it any other time I've watched this movie. But when Wilford Brimley, you know, when Blair is dissecting the thing they brought back oh, from the Norwegian uh, base, mm. I'm sitting here going, why the hell isn't he wearing a mask? I know. This man. Right. <laughs> I was thinking that too. <laughs> Uh, and he's like at one point he had that pencil with like the big eraser on the end and he like taps it on the thing and then he like taps it on his chin as he's thinking <laughs> in tangled lines and I'm like what are you and doing? that's how he got infected <laughs> yep we need to get this movie canceled <laughs> well what what I like about the use of ambiguity in this film is that like it is a bit of a guessing game trying to figure out who gets infected when and where and it's a lot of fun to speculate but but at the end of the day you know all that speculation doesn't necessarily matter because we know the fate of every single character um but it it is a lot of fun to like look at norris and palmer and and like ponder to yourself when were when did they get taken over and and same with blair like the the Mm -hmm. scene where blair is destroying all of the radio equipment and just generally speaking acting like a paranoid crazy person it's like is that uh, is that blair who's just reached a breaking point and who is the only one who understands the severity of what's Mm -hmm. happened here just trying to who who understands that if the thing gets out like it's, it's over it's yeah. game over for the rest of the world yeah and as such has willingly made the sacrifice of like we're all gonna die here none of you understand um or if it's the thing acting what what would seemingly be out of in a way that's counterintuitive to its own self-interest um protect for itself. The, for the sake of being a method actor. <laughs> because that's something that happens in the original book is that like the thing, like once it starts imitating someone will sometimes act against its own self-interest to maintain character. And I yeah. just really have to applaud an alien that that is that committed to the role. Yeah, yeah that's actually a moment in uh, in the Campbell story who goes there is uh, one character insists on being tested. He's like, you know, you test me. I want to show you that, I, that I'm not the monster. And then it's him. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Totally. And, and that's another great thing about this movie. The thing is very dedicated. Yeah. Is that um, the, the tension and the atmosphere is built on not just everyone being afraid of the thing and the alien, but they're reacting to it in different ways. You, you see the stress and they react like, uh, you know, Blair smashing up the, the, all the telecommunications equipment. And there's one guy that, uh, windows who he's trying to get the guns and try and 
to protect himself against everyone. There's a lot of different emotions running through the whole crew and they're reacting to the stress in different ways. And that builds to the tension that makes you think, oh, is that due to the alien? You know, is that the alien doing it? Is it the thing or is it just someone freaking out? And I think it goes half and half. You get a lot of that and that that leaves you more kind of you know, in the wings about what's going on because you can't nail down exactly who is the thing. This is one of the elements that to me goes into the fact that this movie is just a masterclass in suspense, right? Mm -hmm. Because it sets up these characters extremely well in the beginning, right? And as the sort of the tension builds and things get crazier and crazier, on one hand, you have this like uncertainty about, who could be the thing. And even before the characters figure out, you know, there's that scene where uh, it was like the night after they bring the dog in before anybody knows anything's up. And uh, the dog, actually, this is after McCready and the doctor and somebody else go to the, the Norwegian station right, to check it out. And while they're gone, you see the dog walking around and it walks into a room with somebody and you just see the person's shadow. Yeah. Right. And I, and the, like in that moment, I wasn't quite sure who that was. I was like, is that windows hair or is that, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure. And so, you know, and then the helicopter comes back and there's that shot over and over of the dog, just staring out the window, like stock still, yeah. like watching them. And I was like, Ooh, you know, like that's Michael creepy. Myers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what what's great about that that shot of what we can assume to be the first official person at the station that's taken over by the thing. What's great about that is that they made it intentional so that you couldn't tell who it was. Like if mm -hmm. I had to venture a guess, I would guess that it was Norris. Um I know a lot of people think it was Palmer, but I think it was Norris. Uh Mostly because you see Palmer sharing a joint with Childs after yeah. this moment, and Childs isn't infected when they do the blood test. But honestly, it could go any number of ways. But that's the fun part about speculating. That's yeah. one of the fun things about speculating. But what's great about that scene is that it wasn't actually any of the actors in the main cast that was in that room for that moment. Carpenter got a member of the crew, I believe, or or a different actor in particular to play the silhouetted man so that there was literally no way of being able to discern Literally who it impossible was. to know who it is. Oh, wow. See, I was thinking it was, uh, I can't remember his name, but the other guy with the curly hair who was the one when they were they were all tied up on the couch. It's Palmer, right? Was that Palmer that turned yeah, into that, the thing Palmer. and ate Windows heads? Yeah, Palmer the hothead. Okay. Palmer, Norris, and uh, Windows all have curly hair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, I, you know, that's just one of the examples of how... So, and the other thing is, like, you know, so many of these transformations happen... Or, you know, whatever you want to call it, where somebody's taken over and replaced happens off screen. Right. And so you I mean, you know, you can imagine a different horror movie taking the opportunity to, like, show you some gore. Right. Uh, where somebody gets taken over and perhaps using, you know, the dramatic tension of the audience knowing who it is when they're in the room with another person. But that is not the route that this movie takes. And I am so glad because I think that, you know, developing this, 
you know, theme of, of paranoia, this uncertainty, this tension where not even the audience knows who it is. And I think that that really makes it, uh, I think that increases the tension, um, you know, and excitement of the movie, really. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of value in dramatic irony where we know things that the characters don't. And there's a lot of fun that can be had with horror movies. You know, it's fun to yell at the screen at a character of like, you can't trust him. He's a bad guy. But in this in this movie, you just want to yell, run Run!" (laughs) to where, though, there's nowhere to run. But the uh, the the it's. Again, we we mentioned how intentional this film was, and it was very intentional that we be in the same shoes as the characters in terms of not knowing who to trust. So kudos to this movie for that. I I feel like the one character that, you know, it was easier to feel confident about not being the thing was McCready. I mean, there was the there was the scenes you know, uh, like just before the climax of the movie where somebody finds his, like, his shirt. his shirt that's all torn up. And then they go out at looking for that guy and he's, like, burned in the snow or whatever. And then somebody else comes and says that he thinks that it was McCready. And it turns into that whole thing where McCready has to defend himself with the dynamite, yeah. <laughs> right, until uh, uh, until later. I guess there was, you know, a period of time when he was off camera that you could think, well, maybe something happened. But I think the movie was very wise in allowing us to at least cling to the hope that he was probably not infected. It, it might have gotten too chaotic if if he had been off screen for longer or something like that. And it was more ambiguous just where that particular character was concerned. What and do you guys think about that? That's one thing about this movie. It's like the way the the scenes are set up and the pacing is you really the movie itself doesn't show you where everyone is you know at all times yeah. so it's like like half the team will show up and they'll be like where's blair where's so and so where's this guy and you don't know where those guys are cuz they're they haven't been on screen so it leaves it up in the air you don't know what's going on did he have to uh maybe go take a potty you know, and I think this is one of the ways that the movie dealt with the large ensemble very well, because norm, like normally in a movie with a big ensemble, you want to know what everybody's up to and right. stuff like that. But in this one, the inherent limitations of like how much screen time you have to follow every single character only works in the favor of building the suspense for this particular plot. Does that make sense? Because you can't follow everybody all the time, which means that people are going to be off the radar and that means that they could be infected and you just don't know. And, you know, sometimes when it comes to character development, the movie does make some interesting choices in underplaying certain characters and then having them start to, you know, become more, more screen, more dominant and assertive as the movie goes on. Like Fuchs, for instance, Mm -hmm. I believe his first lines of dialogue are when he, when he goes to tell Mac about Blair's notes right before um, right before Benning's, you know, is assimilated, when he says, you know, Mac, I need, to, I need to talk to you about Blair's notes, you know, come outside, you know, I need to talk with you. Like, I think before then, like, he's a largely silent character, but it, it shows, yeah. like, this normally meek person who has kind of been in the background letting all these people talk over him, who is a, you know, a scientist, is starting to get a little bit more assertive as the movie goes on. 
And yeah. sometimes, sometimes underplaying characters actually allows you to do more interesting things with them. I think Aliens does a very similar thing with Hicks, who is mm. very quiet and very underplayed until after that first scene where the Marines run into the monsters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. So good. Talking about McCready in in that moment where he's set up and and basically has to threaten everybody with the dynamite. This is kind of what I was alluding to at the at the beginning of the podcast. That is one hundred percent within his character because um, you know, like like I said, he lost the game at the beginning you know, against the computer at the beginning. Oh yeah, and he pours the, the scotch in there and he, <laughs> and destroys he the chose computer. to destroy it. He still didn't win the game, but he refused <laughs> to take defeat silently, and that's yeah. what happens when he gets framed by the monster is he's technically lost that round because now everybody thinks that he's uh, uh that he's become one of them and so his strategy is to basically be like well sh- cool you can kill me but then everybody else like I'm not going to I'm not going to lose without a fight mm-hmm. um and that's what ends up happening in the final act as well right. when the monster you know destroys the generator and basically dooms all of them in an attempt to be frozen again he basically comes to the to the realization we've been outmatched this is checkmate mm-hmm. but we don't have to go down uh, in the we don't have to accept defeat graciously <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah so, and we don't have lose, to let it win we might lose you but know? you're not going to beat me exactly so (laughs) it's it's one of those things where i appreciate it because it's it's the the story beat of mccready refusing to accept defeat in a gracious manner and it's in all three acts it's in act one in act two it's in act three and it's 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 one of those things where i don't think i noticed it the first couple times i watched this movie but like upon rewatching and rewatching being like yeah no this is freaking fantastic character writing yeah because if you don't set that up at the very beginning then that doesn't make as much sense or you know that character doesn't have as much depth and isn't as believable you know so that was i mean that's when i yeah i mean this is why i give this movie a 10 you know it's really it's really thought it all through and it's and it's down to just the like the little micro moments where it's developing character in the beginning I think okay it, you guys i i gotta admit I have become assimilated. What? After after hearing after hearing you guys talk about the movie, you know, I I gave this movie the lowest score out of the four of us, and I think I changed my mind. Oh, I do give this movie. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna give it a ten. I always have loved this movie. It's a great movie, uh, from beginning scene to end scene. And it's still something that we can talk about today and still be thrilled about. Um, mm-hmm. What was it, Jess? Tw- or Will? 28 years later? <laughs> 38, <laughs> I think we know. Yeah, yeah. No. Well, that's another strength of this movie, to your point, Jess, is like it's one of those movies where the deeper you look at it, the more you can find, you know, if you want to yeah. do that. And uh, that just speaks to the overall strength of it. Now, um Right. I just want to say something talk. real quick. Jess, mm-hmm. you passed the blood test. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. 
real real quick, the only other thing I want to say, uh, just in terms of the writing, is that I think that's one of the things that sets this apart from a lot of other horror movies, both of its time and even to an extent um, of modern horror films, is that, you know, so many horror films play around with the idea of characters making bad decisions. And again, that that can be fun. And in a lot of ways, that's often justified within the narrative itself. But this movie doesn't do that. And maybe it's just because the the focus of this movie, instead of being on hormonal teenagers, um, <laughs> it's focused on adults who are in a very dire situation. But, you know, for all of the panic and paranoia that exists within the film, the characters act as rationally as they possibly can given yeah. the circumstances and that's why when when something fatal happens it's it's that much more devastating because they have taken as many precautions and careful steps as they possibly can and so that's that's one yeah. of the fun things about this film too is that's that that's it's not yeah. it's not a bunch of dummies running around you know running up the the stairs when they should be running out the door it's it's a bunch of very rational decision makers making the best possible decisions that they can given the circumstances right yeah it's like like i, I mentioned earlier it's like you see how people are reacting you know, with the, the terror and some of them are just shutting down. You see, out of a group of 12 guys, you're getting a full range of reactions that they worked into, you know, the character development and stuff. They're not all just running around with their hands up in the air screaming. They react to fear differently. And I like the way that you get the different levels of that from the different characters throughout the film. The characterization was really good. And also to Megan's point, like for me personally, at least, I find it easier to uh, empathize with characters when they're not doing the stupidest possible thing they could possibly yeah. be doing with the information they have, you know, and to your point, it's Let's like all they run it down into the basement. They, We're they, fighting yeah. a monster yeah. made of fire. What do we do? Douse ourselves in gasoline. It'll never <laughs> right. right. It feels like that in some movies, you know, but in this one, they literally like to exactly what you were saying, Megan, like they really do take the most rational course of action that they can, you know, mm -hmm. based on what they know in every moment. And yet still, uh, it does not really work out very well for them. So, Eric, you wanted to say something about characters, I think? I think that's one of the strengths of a lot of John Carpenter movies, especially the ones where he has a hand in the script. I know with this one, uh, he didn't have as big a hand in the script as he did in a lot of his earlier movies. But Carpenter definitely does have a strong emphasis on character in his films, even as even as genre films, and I think that's one of the reasons his films have stood the test of time a lot more than you know other films. Like a, a great example is in Halloween when the three girls are walking home from school. There's a great little moment that tells you everything you need to know about all three of those characters in a, in the matter of a few seconds. When Lori says, "Oh shit, I forgot my chemistry book," and you know right away that, and then Linda's like, "Oh, I, I forget my books all the time." Blah, blah, blah. and Annie makes some smart-ass little comments. So, right away, you know that Lori cares about her education. Linda's a ditz, and Annie's a smartass, and it's right, like right. it's great. And he and he does it in little moments. You know, he doesn't like have these big kind of long scenes, like these soliloquies mm -hmm. that try to introduce you to these characters. Like I see that in a lot of the scripts I read where people try to like hammer in who a character is for pages upon pages. And really, it's the little moments 
that mm-hmm. bring a character to life. That first scene with McCready where he's playing chess and destroys the computer is like a minute, minute and a half, maybe? Oh, it's not even that. It's, it's like 48 seconds. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty short. Well, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying, Eric. And I just want to take the sort of the end of this before we wrap up to talk a little more about the ambiguity and specifically the end of the movie. So for for me, you know, I can say that this the ending for this movie always stuck with me, too, because, OK, uh, McCready and what is it? Childs are left. Childs, yeah. yeah, they're left. And then it just kind of ends. <laughs> and you don't know for sure whether Childs has been infected because he sort of comes out of the snow and McCready's like, wait, where have you been? You know, through the whole climax of the movie, basically. Right. Um, and he's like, oh, well, I, I thought I saw. I thought I, I had, had to puke. <laughs> thought I had, saw the doctor out <laughs> in the snow and I went after him. But, you know, these are also men that didn't trust each other in the first place. So yeah, that, is before, that the tension? Before yeah. Before the aliens showed up, they were not on great terms. <laughs> yeah. It's like, so, okay, so is it just that causing the tension or is it the fact that McCready is infected or is it just that they're both, you know, suspecting each other when neither of them is? When, you know, he knows that McCready knows it's like they're not going to survive if they're both human. Right. Um because, yeah, okay, the whole camp is on fire, and that's going to keep them warm for, like, I don't know, maybe an hour or something. Yeah, there's something about uh, – Child says something about, you know, we've got this place on fire, so it's warming up. And he says something about it getting cold or something. And well, yeah. And, that and thing before, won't survive. And McCready's like, yeah, well, neither will we. Right. Yeah, and they had mentioned – Childs missed the portion of the discussion where McCready basically said, none of us are getting out of here alive, but neither is that thing. Um, right. He he oh, missed yeah. that bit because he ran out into the snow for reasons that we don't know. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we talked a lot about Kurt Russell as McCready in this film and how great the character writing is for McCready. But I got to say, I love Keith David in this movie. I, I, I've always been a big, a big <laughs> I've always been a big fan of Keith David because I, I grew up with a lot of his voice work in a lot of the yeah, shows that I watched. Voice. Oh, he's got a great voice. This is actually the first film, the first live action film I saw him in. I know he d- he's done quite a bit of live action work, but this is the first film where I got to see him on screen and that just, it brings me so much joy and the fact that he is one of the last men standing in this film is also really phenomenal too because for a long time in horror movies, you know, characters who were black weren't really allowed to make it to the end. <laughs> um, True. Not unless it was a George A. Romero movie. Excluding Out of the Living Dead. But uh, so this movie was a a great, you know, breath of fresh air when it comes to that particular trope. But at the same time, yeah, it ends with us not knowing whether Childs just, you know, in keeping with his character, because he he was Mm -hmm. a very hot headed confrontational character. It is in character for him to have tried to go after Blair, like like he says, 
but it's also extremely but. out of character for any one of these characters to leave their post at such a dire point in time. So yeah. we really don't know. And then I love how they kind of talk about it for a second. He's like, what are we going to do? And then McCready says something like, well, why don't we just sit here for a little while and see what happens? And he yeah. like hands him the whiskey. And he hands him the drink. <laughs> and the second, and a lot of people talk about um, the theory about whether or not it was actually a whiskey or if it was oh, like right. a Molotov yeah, cocktail. A lot of people talk about whether or not you can see child's breathing and, and see the cold air escaping from his mouth like like you can with McCready in this scene. But no matter how much speculating and, and the fact that the thing theme music plays as he takes a drink, mm-hmm. um, like at the end of the day, no matter how much speculating we do, if you only look at this movie as a whole, you never know. Like, because I know supplementary material has come out after the fact, but if you ignore all that and just look at the canon of the film itself, Mm -hmm. you never know. And that's friggin' fantastic. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like he has that line where he says, you know, let's just see what happens. And then it's like, you know, wide shot of the camp on fire in the distance. And then the movie's over. That's it. (laughs) You know, let's talk about the gasoline thing for a moment. Now, there are a couple of holes in that. Firstly, the thing is able to assimilate things like memories. You think it would know what the fuck gasoline tasted like. Exactly. <laughs> sure. No, yeah. there there are a ton of holes in every fan theory trying to That's point a tasty definitively That's uh, at Childs being a thing. And secondly, Keith David already drinks gallons of gasoline all the time. You know what? <laughs> Keith fucking David, for God's sake. <laughs> you don't get a voice that cool without yeah, that's that how he gets gasoline. voice. <laughs> yeah. I like the ending because it's about the to me it's about the two of them acknowledging the futility of their mistrust where they realize, you know, the it's it's over. What's the point? Let's just you know, sit here in the snow and have a drink and just chill. Yeah. And 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 the funny thing is if one of them is the thing I think in some ways it makes the ending more potent because the, when the thing attack when the thing you know assimilates somebody they do it when they're alone. So you have these two people. If one of them is the thing, mm-hmm. it has every opportunity to do what it's been doing the whole movie. And if it doesn't do it, I think the reason is it's just as exhausted as the humans are, and it just yeah needs a break. They acknowledge that in the dialogue too. Doesn't uh, McCready say, "Well, if you know." Uh, whatever surprises we have for each other, I don't think we're in much of a you know uh, situation to do much about it. He says something like that, right? Well, he also said too that it's tired and it just wants to go back into the ice and wait for the rescue team. Mm-hmm. You know, so it. it I mean, at that it, point, it, if Childs is the thing, he doesn't even have to kill Kurt Russell because he's going to die anyways. He just has to sit there and wait. Yeah, and I think by the end so. of the movie, McCready's basically. Uh, figured out that his fate is one of, you know, one, two or three options. He doesn't have uh, many good outcomes for it. So he's just like, fuck it. Let's have some whiskey and chill out. Yeah. I mean, if I'm McCready, I'm hoping I have one more stick of dynamite. Uh, <laughs> but Yeah, I think he used up all his firepower by exactly. that point. So but I think like, that I just still got the... some J&B. Which, BTW, one of the best uses of fuck you in a in a horror movie (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly such a fantastic ending great stuff oh man 
Yeah, I mean, I think that this ending really sticks with you, or at least it sticks with me, because it is so ambiguous, and it just lights your imagination and your fear <laughs> on fire, you know, as to what what really could be the situation there at the end. And that's another thing that makes it such a good movie, because when you walk out of the theater, if you're alive in 1982 while it's playing in theaters, or if you watch it and then you turn it off and watch something else, you're still thinking about it because it does leave unanswered questions. And I think great movies, you know, are ones you think about three days later, you know, as you're leaving the theater, as you're driving home. The more you think about the movie after it's over, where all of the loose ends aren't all tied up perfectly, nice and neat, in a little bow, those are the ones that you're like, hmm, I'm going to have to think about that some more. And that's what really keeps this movie, you know, on the classics list. Yeah, I mean, think about it, guys. This We're, we're sitting down and talking about this movie that came out somewhere between 28, 28 and 38 years ago. Years ago <laughs> and we're still talking about it. That, yeah. that in and of itself is proof about the, the power of this type of storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. Now, is there anything, any other thing about this movie that either of you wanted to touch on before we wrap up? I think speculating on who becomes the thing and when and then watching the movie through that lens is actually a very fascinating thing to do. Because if Norris is the first one to be infected, I think it's a very interesting way to watch the movie that way because... During during the early parts of the movie, the, then the thing is actually very non-confrontational. There's a, a moment when he when he goes out with McCready and I believe it's Gary to the crash side of the ship. He doesn't do anything to threaten them. He doesn't do anything to try and assimilate them. And there's even a moment when he's offered the mantle of you know leading the camp because he's and one he of the, just declines. He yeah. de- he declines it. Like like it. Uh, I think. It seems to me that the creature's ultimate goal in this movie was to stay hidden, at whether or not it its goal was to you know infect, infect the rest of the world, or if that was just Blair being paranoid. We don't know, um, or, or you know if it's Palmer again. You know some very fascinating things there because if he's the first to be infected, there he he's bunking with Childs, never makes any attempts at him. You know it's mm-hmm. it's just something that I, it's something that I like to think about. And the thing as Blair was like, like building another spaceship ostensibly, you know, so that it could maybe get home. So that is that is a really interesting interpretation. And that that made me think of something when Eric mentioned, you know, the thing, does it want to infect the world? Because we've all seen the movies where the aliens come in and they want to, you know, take over and destroy everything and be the apex predator or whatever but i think the thing it's not like that it's just basically it doesn't want to take over all of los angeles or anything it just wants to assimilate so it can feed and keep itself alive there's no it's not like it's a like from the aliens it's not like it's dropping egg sacks and sending face huggers out to get everyone it just wants to kill you know, what it's around so it can feed itself and move on. Because they never got into the biology of of the thing, really, as far as what its plans are. So I think that's very interesting if you look at it from that angle. 
Yeah, we saying, we know it's intelligent, but as as far as what its overall goal is, that's something that we're never made privy to because we're yeah, never, never made privy to its thoughts or motivations. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it could be that it just it just wants to go home. It could be that it wants to take over the world. It could be that it has no such aspirations and it's just doing. You know, it's just adhering to its own nature in the same yeah, way that primal, any predator would. Its primal motives and its uh, instincts are just to feed itself, and that's it. And that's kind of terrifying in its own right. You know, because it's going to do what it has to to survive. You know, it's not interested in dominating the world or conquering planets, but it, it will eat the face off of your head. This yeah. this movie this just goes to show that this movie is such fertile ground for speculation and the imagination and mm-hmm. I think that the fact that you can take so many perspectives or interpretations of it is a, a real strength of this movie because whatever interpretation you come away with it's no less frightening right uh, for that so there is there is no good ending to this movie. No good ending, <laughs> no no. Good ending for the What movie. are you talking about? The ending is perfect. <laughs> well, no. But they live, but you know that they won't continue doing so. For they live, which is another good John Carpenter movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cinematically a perfect ending though. Okay, uh Megan or Jess, any other things you wanted to touch on real quick before we wrap up? Again, this this movie's great. And all of all of my nitpicks are are st- more like in terms of like looking at the genre as a whole and saying, hey, let's be better about representation. But no, the the movie's a great ride. It's fantastic. It's thoughtful. It's thought provoking. It's so many things. The only thing that like really disappoints me about the whole thing in hindsight is that the 2011 film was made with so much love and kind of just like uh, Eric was saying in terms of how Universal failed the original movie when it came to advertising and things like that. Right. Universal kind of failed the the 2011 film as well because mm. they did all these practical effects for it. And then studio meddling decided, no, we're going to do subpar CGI to paint all over that hard work and artistry. Mm. And so it like... The two thousand, like I really want to see a director's cut of the two thousand eleven version of the thing because I feel like we got cheated out of a really good movie made with a lot of love of this film, and uh, yeah, but like in that same vein, looking at the thing, often imitated but never duplicated. <laughs> I like that. Oh, that's great. Yep. Perfect. Yep, for sure. Perfection. Okay. Okay. All right. So, um, why don't we why don't we wrap up with final thoughts then, Megan? Do you have anything to add in terms of your final thoughts? Um, I, I you know, kind of just what I said earlier. This film is fantastic, and it is a very rewarding watch for anybody who is not bothered by body horror. I can understand <laughs> if this is beyond your threshold for yeah. for what is acceptable when it comes to your horror consumption. But if if you are okay with body horror imagery, this is a fantastic watch for you, and you will not be disappointed. 
Oh, oh, I do have one other thing. I okay. the um. Sorry, out not, of time. Click less less to do with the the <laughs> film itself, but I've actually been listening to an audio drama called The White Vault. I'm not involved with this in any in any particular way. It's just a thing that I'm consuming that I really really like. It is very thing inspired. So if you like the thing and you like audio dramas, check out The White Vault on like Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. The White Vault. It's a podcast yes it's a audio drama fiction podcast and it's great very interesting thanks for the thanks for the rec yeah okay uh jess what are your final thoughts about the thing 1982 like i mentioned earlier this is a movie that the way it's created itself makes you think about it after it's over and if you're someone that hasn't watched the thing or you're not familiar with it do yourself a favor Go back, find the movie, and watch it because it is a fantastic, suspenseful, sci-fi horror clue slash whodunit sort of movie that will keep you on the edge of your seat. And it's always been one of my favorites. And I remember when we were talking about which movie we were going to discuss on our podcast about horror movies... Uh, I mentioned The Thing, and your response in text back was, THE THING, all caps, with like four <laughs> exclamation points. And yep. that sealed the deal. Yep. And that, that told me that we were both on the same page. And there's so many people that if you haven't seen this movie, you're going to love it. It's fantastic. And you don't have to worry about that crappy CGI, because it's all makeup and uh you know, real life. Some of the best practical effects I've ever seen oh, yeah. to this day. And it's like, is that spaghetti? Are those wires? What's going on <laughs> here? Oh my. When the dog's head splits open, uh, hashtag uh, not PETA friendly. Yes. This movie is not, <laughs> not PETA friendly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, all right. Eric, your final thoughts? You know, I first saw this movie, you know, 20 years ago. I was 12 years old and the lights were turned off. And even back then, I knew I was, you know, looking at something special. And the fact that it didn't get discovered at the time of its release, you know, is something of a tragedy because that had permanent, you know, repercussions on John Carpenter's career. He was fired, you know, from Firestarter because of the performance of this film. And that led to him making Christine. And he eventually, you know, left the studio system. But at the same time, I think the fact that it has been rediscovered and it has been reappraised, and I think these days, it is actually a more beloved film than E.T. Because I don't hear a lot of people talking about E.T. anymore. I hear a lot of people talking about the thing. Yeah, you don't walk away from E.T. with questions. (laughs) And and I like E.T. I think E.T. is a perfectly good movie. But I think... The fact that this film has been rediscovered and it is, you know, now regarded as a classic. There are all these special edition re-releases of the film coming out on a yearly basis because it's become such a cult favorite. You know, not a cult favorite, just a favorite. I think that's a testimony to, you know, how good this film is and how the horror genre as a whole is often overlooked. Because Mm. horror has a lot more to say than just boo. And I think yeah. The Thing is one of the best films that exemplifies that. Yeah. And it's it's like you said, The Thing really sticks with you at, 
through time and you don't forget about it. And after I saw the movie the first time, I loved it so much. In my early teens, that's when I got into comic books and I'd already seen the thing. And then I found out that Dark Horse Publishing had some thing comic books and I I bought them up. There's I think there's only a couple of them, but I bought those and those are some of my mo- my most cherished comics because it's such a unique franchise and it's such a unique monster and creature and alien and you just always want to explore more into it and I think that's what one of the great things about the movie is with its open ending and the questions it doesn't answer. There's so much more you can think about when it comes to it. And that's why it's still one of my favorites. Yeah. Thanks, Jess. For me, um, this movie holds kind of a special plate in my heart of horrors because uh, (laughs) it was, you know, um, my dad actually introduced me to a number of, um, you know, uh, either horror movies or movies that I just uh, have a lot of affection for now, like, you know, the first Terminator movie. Mm-hmm. And um, this is, I think, one of the horror movies that really shaped my appreciation for not just horror movies, but film. It made such a big impact on me. And, you know, like I think I said before, like that whole blood test scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not I mean, I guess it gets pretty gory, but I always remember the the suspense of it before the monster even comes out. Uh, right. They're just testing the blood. It was just like because everyone on screen is feeling the same tension, and it's transferred to the viewer. It's and I love that. It was a very yeah. It was just a very intense scene, and it made the whole movie made such an impact on me. And you know, I do think that, uh, like Megan said, if you can, you know, if you uh, can watch movies with body horror, uh, <laughs> or you know, and if you're any type of fan of Lovecraft's work. This is a movie that you're going to get a lot of enjoyment out of, and you know you should do yourself a favor and give it a watch. I mean, we've been talking for over an hour now about how wonderful it is, and you know, still, I mean, we could probably talk about this movie all day. Uh, yeah. It's just there's there's so much to it. There's so much packed into every scene. It's just so well constructed that you know it remains in one of the top spots, sort of in my own you know personal rankings not just of horror movies but just of of movies that yeah, i it's a, it's a great movie it's like even today um when i'm watching something on netflix even a brand new show i've never seen before but i really like i'm still you know oh grab my phone check that okay look at my phone oh what's going on on screen da, da, da. okay go back to the phone but with this movie it's like once it starts that's the only thing I can look at. I didn't mm. look at my phone. It, it just sucks you in and pulls you in with the suspense and the intrigue. And it is, it's a, it's a wild ride of paranoia and, you know, it's great. I would say too, um, you know, really specifically, if you are a writer or uh, filmmaker, um, you definitely want to study this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. this this is a master class in so many elements of story structure, of, you know, um, of direction, of suspense, of building, you know, tension and suspense through what you show versus what you don't show. And I think uh, that anybody studying it in that way and really taking the time to think about how it's constructed is going to get a lot out of it. I know, you know, I certainly have. So... 
Whew, I want to thank all of you for coming today to talk about The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing. The Thing, 1982. 1982. And uh, I also want to thank I also want to thank our listeners for uh, joining us on this uh, on this uh, special horror episode for Halloween month as we like to call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, thanks again to Megan and Eric. Um, let's start with Eric. Can you uh, tell people where they can find you online and what you're up to? Screen Up Entertainment is a uh, website that I run with a couple of my uh, writing friends from Movie Pilot. It's a pop cult. It's a pop culture, you know, contemporary and you know, classic, you know, website that we've been, you know, we've been running since 2018. Uh, I also am still working for International Screenwriters Association as a freelance script reader. So if you ever submit a screenplay to a festival like Table Read Your Screenplay, you know, creative screenwriters, you know, I may be the guy that reads your stuff and um, hopefully doesn't crush your dreams. But uh, (laughs) Hopefully not. No, you make dreams, don't crush them. Remember, he's also a fantastic writer and might have some surprises in the future. Just might. Megan, where can people find you online and what you're up to? You guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Manguin. That's T-H-E-M-E-N-G-U-I-N. I run a YouTube channel called Silver Screams where me and my aforementioned roommate who refused to watch this movie with me, uh, we talk about <laughs> horror things. I am also a member of a Rooster Team Radio where me and my co-host talk about Rooster Teeth related shows. And as Will mentioned, I am a co-host on the No Love Lost podcast, which is a lost retrospective podcast in which... Me and my co-host, Will Link, talk about Lost. Uh, He loves Lost, and I don't, and we discuss. (laughs) Meg, I ought to to talk with you about um, better pitches. (laughs) 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 My my pitch sucks. Yours was amazing. I want to see all of that shit right now. Yeah. I'm sold. And once once again, too, that is silver screams, as in what you do when you're scared, not silver screams. I didn't realize that this was the same roommate who did the horror uh, YouTube show with you, and she wouldn't watch the thing. Oh, wow. Kind of. Well, here's the thing, is that my shtick with Will. No, is this that- is the thing. <laughs> My thing is that with uh, with Will, he loves Lost and I don't, and we talk about it. And that's sort of the case with uh, Silver Screams as well. My roommate uh, is not a horror movie fan, and uh, I am the biggest horror more of a romance comedy. Oh, I she, see. She prefers, like, sci-fi and adventure stuff but like uh, and fantasy stuff. But, like, when it comes to horror, I have to, like, slowly throw stuff that's very palatable and approachable <laughs> at her. Like, she likes Scream. Like, it took me a little while, but I eased her into the horror genre with Scream. And I've slowly but surely gotten her to like other things within the genre. So it's not like a straight up, I don't like horror movies. Um anymore but i could see how tossing her willy-nilly into the thing uh could be maybe a bit much well even even when it comes to i'm a big fan of a show on youtube called like the kill count even watching james a janice do his very very funny thing and talking about the thing uh she's like yeah hard pass (laughs) skip this one you watch it on your computer with the headphones on Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks again, everybody. And uh, Jess, do you want to give our listeners our uh, social media deets? Oh, well, I I guess you know I do. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, CastBox, Stitcher, 
anywhere fine podcasts are found as Mecha Dragon. Look us up. Give us a five-star rating, thumbs up, everything you can do. If you're on Facebook, look for Mecha Dragon. And if you're on Twitter or Instagram, we're Mecha Dragon Show. Any questions or comments, you can email us at mechadragonshow at gmail.com. And uh, we might talk about you in the future on the next episode of Mecha Dragon. All right. Thanks, everybody. Captain Will signing out. Bye-bye. Peace. Our music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0, creativecommons.org slash licenses slash buy slash 3.0.